0: All right, it's good to see you guys this week. Uh, Thankful for my sister watching our kids so we get away last week. Thankful for you as a church, giving us an opportunity to refresh and recharge. But I'm really excited to be back with you this week. There's nothing quite like having the opportunity to preach the Word of God. And I'm really excited about the book that we are going to study starting today. We're in the book of 1 Thessalonians. That's where we'll be here for the next several weeks. I'm excited to see what God will teach us through this great book. There's a huge focus on the return of Christ and certainly... We'll see that even here in chapter one today. But I'm excited because this is the word of God, and there is nothing better than be able to share the word of God together. So let me pray, and then we'll dive in. Uh, Father, we are we're grateful uh, that we have the opportunity to study your word. We know that what makes today, what we're about to do, special, is that this is your word. It's not because I have something special to say, but rather it's because your word is powerful. It's living and active, it's sharper than any double-edged sword. It's like a hammer that breaks a rock into pieces and we're praying that today Your Word would come with power, that it would come with conviction, that it would come with the power of the Holy Spirit. We're praying that You would speak to us, that You would move in us, that You would motivate us, that You would challenge us, that You would convict us so that ultimately we would have a greater desire to follow Your Son. Father, we love You. and We love Your Word because Your Word testifies about You. and We want to know more of You today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, of all the bizarre news stories in the last five years, surely one of the most strange has to be the Balloon Boy incident of 2009. Maybe you remember this story. It certainly garnered a lot of media attention at the time. As you may recall, in October of 2009, Richard and Heen reported that a giant helium-filled balloon that was shaped like a UFO had drifted away from their home in Fort Collins, Colorado. Now the fact that a giant helium balloon was drifting away was not what made the story. What made the story is that Richard Mayumi Heen reported that their six-year-old son Falcon was trapped inside of this giant helium balloon. Now, of course, the media immediately latched onto this story. There's nothing quite like the idea of a six-year-old boy drifting away in a UFO-shaped helium balloon to capture the nation's attention. And certainly, I would guess that many of you actually followed this as it was happening live. It was all over CNN and Fox News. And although I don't remember I was, I vaguely remember watching this story. Eventually, the balloon would land about 50 miles away, but not before National Guard helicopters were chasing it and not before they shut down the Denver International Airport for a period of time and wasted who knows how much of taxpayers' dollars. Well, eventually, the great twist in the story is that when the balloon landed, Falcon Heen was not in the balloon. There were reports that he'd fallen out of the balloon at some point. In fact, some people who have been watching on TV said that at some point they saw something fall out of the balloon, and they were convinced that this little boy must have fallen somewhere, and so they sent out this massive manhunt looking for Falcon Heen. Well, it turns out a couple of hours later that the whole day, he'd been actually hiding in the family's attic. And as they started to do media interviews with the family, they would make these uh, circuits on national media. People started to wonder if there's maybe something strange about this story. There was something about the way the family was answering questions, and certainly something about the way the little boy was answering questions that made people wonder, is there something weird going on? Well, it turns out after uh, several days or months, I'm not even sure how long it took them, of probing, they figured out that the whole thing was a giant hoax. It was something dreamed up by the family to try to create media attention because they wanted to start their own reality TV show. The plan all along was that the boy would be hiding and that they would send the media off on this wild goose chase. It was a truly bizarre story and one of the great hoaxes of modern times. Now, of course, it's not the only hoax. You've probably heard of other famous ones, the War of the Worlds hoax, or the Loch Ness Monster hoax, for those of you who are believing that was true, sorry, that was a hoax also. But there's also been some ones that have been rather strange, other strange ones that maybe aren't quite as well known. Maybe you've heard of the Taco Liberty Bell hoax. In 1996, on April Fool's Day, Taco Bell purchased newspaper ads in eight major newspapers across the country announcing that in an effort to reduce national debt, they had purchased the Liberty Bell. And they'd renamed it the Taco Liberty Bell. Now, according to the article, thousands of people protested before they realized that this was just a giant prank. Not to be outdone, in 1998, Burger King purchased an ad in USA Today proclaiming that they had added a left-handed Whopper, the Whopper being their signature hamburger, a left-handed Whopper to their menu. Again, who knows how many people actually believe this. But my favorite is a bit older. In 1957, the BBC produced a three-minute report in which they documented a family from Switzerland harvesting spaghetti from a spaghetti tree. According to the article that I was reading, many viewers were confused, but some were completely fooled and bought the report completely. Now, I can say this from personal experience. I kind of get how that could happen to some level. There have been several times in the last five years where I've logged on to Gmail on April 1st and they had some new feature. I'd forgotten that it was April 1st. I'm like, why is Google doing this? So I admit that I understand how it's easy to get the wool pulled over your eyes. But it does beg the question, how do you know when something's genuine or how do you know if something is a hoax? Of course, if it's happening on April 1st, I should probably be a clue that maybe it's not the real deal. And listen, no matter what day of the year, if someone is telling you that spaghetti grows on trees, you should probably be skeptical. But there are times where it's legitimately hard to figure out is something genuine or is it a fraudulent thing? And there are times where it doesn't really matter, right? There are times where it doesn't really matter to decipher between real and fake. I suppose at some level, it doesn't really matter if you think that spaghetti grows on trees. It might make you uneducated, but it's okay if you believe spaghetti grows on trees. It's not really the end of the world. But there are other times where deciphering between the real thing and a fake are extremely important. This is especially true of spiritual matters. Consider, for example, this question. How do you know if someone is a genuine Christian or if they are just faking it? Or maybe to make it more personal, how do you know if you are a genuine Christian or if your faith is nothing more than a hope? And really, when we get to questions like that, we realize that the answer is not just a trivial thing, like trying to figure out if a spaghetti tree is a real thing. Now the answer, or figuring out whether that is real or true, whether your faith is genuine or fake, that can be the difference between heaven and hell. And because of that, I think that this passage that we are about to study in 1 Thessalonians 1 is particularly helpful. As Paul is addressing the Thessalonians, and as he is identifying the genuine marks of their faith, I suspect that what we will find is that this will be helpful for us as we try to figure out what genuine faith looks like. So let's read here, 1 Thessalonians 1, starting in verse 1. Here we are, Paul, Silvanus, now Silvanus is just another way of saying Silas. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now to be clear, this is what's happening in 1 Thessalonians 1, 1-10. Paul is giving thanks for evidences of grace that he sees in the Thessalonians. And specifically, he's giving thanks because he sees evidence that they are genuine followers of Christ. Verse 4, I think, is the linchpin of chapter 1. Verse 4, let me read it again. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Now, in verses 2 through 3, he gives some evidences, some general evidences of the Thessalonians' faith. And then in verse four, he says, we know that you are chosen by God. And then in verses five through 10, he gives some more specific evidences that he sees that they are chosen by God. So in that way, both two and three in verses five through 10, they're supplementing the linchpin, which is verse four. Paul is saying, we know that you are chosen by God, which begs the question, what does it mean that the Thessalonians were chosen by God? This is the language that's used to describe those who are part of the family of God. In other words, this is the language that's used to describe those who are genuine believers. They are chosen or they are adopted into the family of God. Now, there are lots of different ways that a genuine believer of Christ could be described. But this is one of them. It's not an accident that to describe a genuine believer, in this case, Paul uses the word chosen by God. Because he is wanting to emphasize to us that ultimately, salvation is God's doing. That if we are going to be saved, ultimately, it's because of the gracious work of God. It's not anything we do. It is His grace. He chooses us. Now that's not to say that we don't have a role to play. It's not to say that we don't have a legitimate choice to make. But it is to say that ultimately, He chooses us. Of course, over the years, there have been all kinds of theological debates about this. What does it mean to be chosen? What does it mean to be elected? And how does that play out with our choices? But in 1 Thessalonians 1, Paul is not having a theological debate. Now, in the book of Romans, he deals with this more extensively. But here, he's just stating it as a matter of fact. That they are chosen by God. God chooses. And what he's saying here, in effect is that he knows that they are chosen, or in other words, he knows that they are genuine believers, and then he gives the evidence. So in other words, he's using the word chosen as a synonymous term with what it means to be a genuine follower of Christ. So chosen, elected, family of God, genuine believers, all of these are synonymous terms. Now again, there's a reason why Paul is using this term, because he's wanting to communicate to us that God is the one who initiates. But the point of the passage is this. He's saying, we are confident, Thessalonians, that you are believers. And then he lays out evidences in verses 5-10 through 10 and verses 2-3. through 3. So the question for us this morning is this, or this afternoon is this. What is it that is the genuine evidence? What is it that gives evidence that the Thessalonians are genuine believers in Christ? What is it that gives evidence? Well, first we see this, that the gospel came to the Thessalonians in power. Look at verses four and five. Again, verse four, he says, This, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Paul says in verse five that the gospel did not come to the Thessalonians just in words. Although I think it's important to point out, it did come in words. At its core, the Gospel is a verbal proclamation. It's announcing of a good news. It's using words to announce that Jesus came to save sinners. But Paul is quick to point out here that it didn't just come in words. It came in power. It came in conviction. It came with the Holy Spirit. Listen, the reality is that a person can hear the message of Jesus Christ over and over and over again. You can know all the facts about the Gospel. You can know that God is holy, And perfect and that our sin both by nature and by choice has separated us from God and that there is nothing we can do to make ourselves right with God the only hope we have is that God sent his son Jesus fully God and fully man who lived a perfect life and died on the cross lived the life that we could not live and paid the punishment we should have paid dying on the cross and rose three days later that those who repent of their sins and trust him could have eternal life You can hear that message over and over and over again. But the reality is that unless the Holy Spirit opens your eyes, unless the Holy Spirit opens your ears, it won't change anything. 1 Corinthians 2.14 puts it this way. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. In other words, the normal person, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to Him. Listen, I certainly discovered this in my own life. I grew up going to church every Sunday, and although it wasn't necessarily the most Christ-focused or gospel-centered church, I feel confident that at some point I heard about Jesus dying on the cross. If nothing else, one of the things that our church was good at is reading Scripture publicly, and so I feel confident that if nothing else, I heard in the reading of Scripture the announcement that Jesus died on the cross for sinners. But here's the thing, although I heard it who knows how many times, I never actually heard it. Now, I physically heard it. I physically heard about Jesus dying on the cross, but spiritually I did not hear it. It wasn't until September of 1999 when I was in the student union at the University of Northern Iowa and Mark Walter shared with me from the book of Romans this great message about Christ dying on the cross for sinners. It was only then that I heard the message for the first time. Even though who knows how many times I'd heard it before physically, that was the first time that I heard it spiritually that I understood that I was a great sinner and that Christ was a great Savior. Now the question is, why did I hear it that time? Why not all those other times? I think the answer is simply this, that the message came with the power of the Holy Spirit, that it came with conviction, the Holy Spirit was working in my life. Listen, the truth is that some of you in here have heard the gospel of Jesus Christ a hundred times, maybe more. Maybe you've heard it a thousand. And you can recite all of the facts. You know everything there is to know about Jesus dying on the cross. But the Spirit has not yet opened your eyes. The Spirit has not yet opened your ears to see that you, you are a sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. The Spirit has not yet come with power and conviction to the point that you recognize that this isn't just a message for someone else. This is a message for you. I want you to know I am praying that today as we preach the Word of God, that the Word would come with power, that it would come with conviction, that it would come with the power of the Holy Spirit, and that you would begin to see that this message of Jesus Christ is not just a bunch of words, but rather that you would hear the Gospel of Jesus Christ today and you would think this is a lifeline, this is a treasure to be had. I'm praying that would happen. And listen, in a group this size, I know, because I sat in the pews for 18 years, I know that there are some here today who have heard the message a thousand times and yet you've never heard it before. And I'm just begging of you. I'm pleading with you. I'm praying for you that the Holy Spirit would come and that He would work in your life and that you would see that you need a Savior. One of the things that gave Paul confidence that the Thessalonians were genuine believers, is that the message came with the power of the Holy Spirit. It came with conviction. And one of the ways that was evidenced is by the fact that their lives changed. That's one of the things we see here about the Thessalonians that marks the genuineness of their faith. Their lives were completely different. In fact, Paul points this out in multiple ways here in this passage. He points out this first, that they became imitators of Paul and Silas and Timothy and ultimately of the Lord. Look at verse 6. This is what he says in verse six. This is another evidence he's giving of the genuineness of their faith. Verse six, "And you became imitators of us and of the Lord."'ll Continue verse six here in just a second. But there was an obvious change in the way the Thessalonians were living. They started to imitate Paul and Timothy and Silas, and ultimately they started to imitate Jesus Christ more and more. To put it simply, they were becoming more like Christ. It was an evidence that their faith was genuine. This is one of the themes of the book of 1 Thessalonians, that we ought to look for those that we can imitate, and ultimately that we would imitate Jesus Christ. And not only that, not only would we look for those that we can imitate, but we should also be ones who others can imitate. It's one of the themes of Thessalonians. It's also one of the evidences he gives that the Thessalonians' faith was genuine. And it worked itself out in specific ways. For example, like Paul and Timothy and Silas, and like Jesus, They received the Word with joy in the midst of much affliction. Again, this is another evidence. We see it here in the rest of verse 6. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the Word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Now to understand the type of affliction the Thessalonians were facing it's probably helpful to know a little bit about the way the church started. So I want you to turn back in your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. This is where we read about the church in Thessalonica getting started, Acts chapter 17. So when we talk about the Thessalonians receiving the word with much joy, we need to understand what type of affliction were they facing. Acts 17 describes the type of affliction they were facing. So Acts 17 starting in verse 1. This is the starting of the church at Thessalonica. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. For there was a synagogue of the Jews, and Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three days, three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer, and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men from the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. So just for the record, when they're forming a mob and they're turning people into uproar, that's a sign that they're kind of opposed to the message, right? Just for those who are are missing the subtle markers here, right? Verse 6, And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities shouting, These men who have turned the whole world upside down have come here also." And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Remember that line. That will become important later. That there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason, the rest, they let them go. This is some serious affliction. But just to understand how serious it is, we need to keep reading a little bit. Go down to verse 12. It starts to clue us in here as to how serious this affliction is. Verse 12, "...many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men." Let me backtrack a second here. Paul and Silas had gone on their way to Berea. They'd fled Thessalonica because of the persecution. They'd gone to Berea. And then in verse 12, we read that a few of them were believing in Berea. Verse 13, "...but when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the Word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea." Silas and Timothy remained there. Now there may be something that we miss here because we don't know the geography real well. But the fact that these men are coming from Thessalonica to Berea, this is a major, major deal. Berea was about 45 miles to the west, southwest of Thessalonica. And this was in the days before the Metro North Railroad. This was in the days before cars or planes. 45 miles of travel, that's a serious, serious distance. And these men in Thessalonica are not only opposing Paul and Timothy and Silas in Thessalonica, they are making the point of traveling all the way to Berea to make sure that this message does not spread. I think it's safe to say that they were very opposed to the message of Jesus Christ. The question is, why? Why did the Thessalonians hate? message so much. And when I talk about Thessalonians here, I'm not talking about the believers in Thessalonica. I'm just saying, why was this city so opposed to this message of Jesus Christ? Well, to answer that question, we probably need to understand a little bit more about the history of Thessalonica. Thessalonica was the most important city in the region of Macedonia. It was powerful both politically and economically. Now the main reason it was powerful politically and economically is because the Roman Empire, and specifically the Roman Emperor, granted Thessalonica a great deal of freedom. They were classified as a free city. And this was due to the fact that the Emperor gave them great latitude to operate both politically and economically. And as such, the city of Thessalonica was very loyal to the Roman Empire and very loyal to the Emperor himself. In fact, the imperial cult. And by the imperial cult, we simply mean people worshiping Caesar was up and running in great numbers in Thessalonica. And the reason it was up and running is because people felt like they owed Caesar. And so they would worship Caesar because of all the things that he had done to benefit them, but also because they believed that by worshiping him as king, they would also be granted future favor. So understand this. When people start worshiping Jesus, for many in Thessalonica, this was a threat to their political and economic freedom. They were afraid that if Caesar, if the emperor found out that people were worshiping another king, Jesus, that the emperor would cut off all of their freedom and that their economic and political success would start to dwindle away. And so when you understand that, you can begin to understand why people were so opposed to the message of Jesus Christ. Because they knew that if this message took off in Thessalonica, it might mean that they were not as successful economically or politically. And so no wonder people are traveling from Thessalonica to Berea to stop the message. It is safe to say that the believers in Thessalonica experienced some very real affliction. Mobs, angry crowds, beatings, maybe even in some cases death. All of this, all of this would have been in play for Thessalonian believers. And yet we are told in 1 Thessalonians 1 that they receive the message with joy. Even in the midst of this affliction. Listen, anyone can claim to follow Christ when life is easy and following Christ is socially acceptable. But when the authorities are knocking on your door and your life is at stake, then you find out how real your faith in Christ is. Then you find out whether your joy is based on who Christ is and what He's done, or if your joy is based on circumstances. On Thursday nights with our newer Hope Care Group, our, our newer Hope Care Group is a group of young professionals, 20s, early 30s. We've been studying this series called Gospel Revolution by J.D. Greer. And in that series, J.D. Greer says this. He says, our ability to have joy in all circumstances is a measure of our belief in the Gospel. Let me say that again. Our ability to have joy in all circumstances is a measure of our belief in the Gospel. In other words, what he's saying is that we can tell how much we believe the Gospel by how much we're able to have joy in all circumstances. If your joy comes and goes based on how things are going, then chances are there's something about the Gospel that deep down you're not really believing. The message of the Gospel of Jesus Christ is that you are approved because of what Jesus did on the cross. There's nothing you could do that would make God love you less. There's nothing you have done that makes Him love you more. You are approved because of what Jesus did. And although this world is messed up, and although there will be trouble in this world, there is another world coming where everything will be made right. That is our hope. And that is the hope that rings loudly and clearly in the book of 1 Thessalonians. Every chapter talks about the return of Christ. It's that hope that enables us to have joy in all circumstances. Because we believe that we're already approved in Christ and that one day we will reign with Him forever. That's the hope that we have. That one day everything will be made right. And it's obvious that that's the hope that the Thessalonians embraced because they had joy no matter the circumstances and is one of the evidences of the genuineness of their faith. But not only that, they also, the Thessalonians, were an example to the rest of Macedonia and Achaia, both in their word and their deeds. Check this out. In verse 8, it seems pretty obvious that they were verbally proclaiming the message of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 8. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, But your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. Now from north to south, the two provinces of Macedonia and Achaia stretch for several hundred miles. And according to Paul's testimony here, the entire region has heard about Jesus because of the Thessalonians. They were talking about Jesus. The fact of the matter is, we talk about what we love. If you are a parent... I would guess that it's very hard for you to go a week without at some point talking about your kids. If you don't have kids and you've hung around parents, you know that this is true. It is really hard for parents not to talk about their kids. It's because it's what we love. Or maybe to make a more general example, if you like food, I'm guessing that most of you like food, it is really hard to go a week without talking about food. It's really hard to go a week without talking about what you will be eating or what you have eaten. Listen, the fact of the matter is that we talk about what we love. In fact, think about the things that you normally talk about in your everyday conversations outside of those things related to work. My guess is that 90% of the time you're talking about things that you love, that you're passionate about. Listen, I think it's obvious that the Thessalonians were talking about Jesus because they loved Jesus. And it wasn't just that they were making an effort to go and do evangelism per se. It's just that Jesus was coming off their lips. In fact, so much so that the message of Jesus Christ had spread throughout the region of Macedonia and the So here's a question I have for you today. Do you ever speak about Christ? And I'm not talking about on Sunday mornings. I'm not talking about during your care groups. I'm just saying in the course of your everyday life, do you talk about Jesus? And again, I'm not just specifically talking about evangelism. I'm sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with non believers. I'm just saying, is Jesus on your lips? If you love him, it would seem natural that that would be something that you would talk about. And if we don't talk about Jesus, that might say something to us about our own relationship with Christ. But listen, for the Thessalonians, it wasn't just that they verbally talked about Christ, it's also that they lived out the message. They were an example. Look at verse 7. Verse 7. They imitated, but they were also those who could be imitated. Verse 7. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia. And, in Achaia. and that example was lived out in several ways. It was lived out in the way that they received Paul and Timothy and Silas. Verse 9. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. They here being the people of Macedonia and Achaia. They're, in other words, what Paul is saying is here, we've heard about how other people have noticed how you received us. Now that's a little bit confusing. But understand this. Paul and Timothy and Silas, they were not popular. Right? Remember, people are tracking them down in Berea. And yet word is spread about how the Thessalonians have received Paul and Timothy and Silas. In other words, these men who were unpopular, these men who other people were forming a mob against, word is spread about how the Thessalonians embraced them despite the fact that they were not popular. It was obvious that they loved people, that they loved Paul and Timothy and Silas. It's also obvious that they turned from idols to serve the living God. That's the rest of verse 9. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. John Calvin once said that all of our hearts are like idol-making factories. That's true, isn't it? We were made to worship. And we will worship. The question is, what will we worship? Whether it's money or power or sex or popularity or health, or entertainment, or stuff, or family, or even Christ, we will worship something. And by worship here, we don't mean that you necessarily bow down to it. We mean that you live for it. At its core, that's what worship is. It's seeing something as supremely valuable and then responding accordingly. Consider money, for example. The way that you worship money is not by building an altar and bowing down to it. No, the way that you worship money is by doing everything to gain money, by making it the greatest priority. The way that you worship family is by putting family above everything else. In the same way, the way that you worship God is by putting Him above everything, by orienting your life to make much of Him. That's what it means to worship. We are all worshipers. The question is, what are we worshiping? For the Thessalonians, they had turned from idols. Maybe for them it was the emperor. Maybe it was stuff. Maybe it was money. But they had turned from their idols to worship the living and true God. It was yet another evidence of the genuineness of their faith. But there's one more thing that Paul says here that he gives as evidence that they genuinely believed in Christ, and that's this. They were waiting for Jesus. Verse 10, And to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. I mentioned this earlier, but this is, if not a major theme, this is the major theme of the book of 1 Thessalonians. The return of Jesus Christ. Every chapter in this book mentions the return of Jesus Christ. In fact, every chapter ends by talking about Jesus Christ returning. This is the major theme. And as the book goes on, it's obvious that the Thessalonians had all kinds of questions about the return of Christ. Questions I'm guessing many of you have. But it's also obvious that while they had questions... Their hope was in the fact that one day Jesus would return and He would spare them from the wrath to come. And so when you put all these things together, you begin to see why Paul was so confident that the Thessalonians were chosen. Why he was so confident that they were genuine believers. Because the message of the Gospel had come to them in power, with conviction in the Holy Spirit. Because they'd begun to imitate Paul and Timothy and others. Because they received the message with joy, even though there was much afflictions. Because they proclaimed the message to others. Because they turned from idols to serve the living God. Because they loved other believers. Because they were waiting for Christ. Or to sum it up as verse 3 does, they worked out their faith. They labored in love. They were steadfast in hope. And while, listen, it's certainly Paul's intent to encourage the Thessalonians into. to Uh, Be thankful to God for what he sees in the Thessalonians. I think it's also appropriate for us to ask ourselves this question Do we see these evidences in our lives? I think it's appropriate for us to read 1 Thessalonians 1 and to ask ourselves this question How are we doing? If this is a litmus test of the genuineness of our faith, do we see these things in our lives? When you heard the gospel message, did it come to you with power, with the Holy Spirit, with conviction? Do you find yourself looking for other Christians to follow? Do you find yourself living more like Christ? Do you have joy in the gospel even when circumstances seem to be working against you? Is the message of Christ spreading at all because of you? Have you turned from idols to serve the living and true God? Do you love other believers? Do you long for the return of Christ? If the answer to those questions is no, that should probably be a concern. To say it negatively, If the Gospel message is boring to you. If you come here every week and you think to yourself, I've heard about Jesus already. I get it. This is boring. If there is precious little difference in your life before Christ and after Christ. If joy comes and goes based on circumstances. If there is no desire in you to speak about Christ. If money or power or stuff or anything else is more captivating to you than Jesus if the return of Christ doesn't move the radar at all for you, then I think you have reason to be concerned. You have reason to ask yourself, are you a genuine follower of Christ? If, on the other hand, when you heard the message of Jesus Christ, you realize that you are a great sinner and He is a great Savior, if your life is vastly different now than it was before, if your joy persists even when circumstances seem to worsen, if Christ naturally flows off your lips, if Christ is the treasure of your life, if the return of Christ is something you long for, then all of those things are very good signs and they should encourage you. And your heart should be filled with gratitude towards God. You should leave here today worshiping and thanking a God who would be so gracious so as to choose you. And thankfully, I want to say this. I see those evidences in many of you. And I thank God, just like Paul thanks God for the Thessalonians, I thank God for what I see happening here at New Hope. Listen, the reality is that sometimes knowing the difference between a fraud and a real deal is not that big of a deal. If you still think that the Liberty Bell is owned by Taco Bell, it's okay. I mean, you're wrong, but it's okay, right? I'm not going to shun you or throw you out of here. But sometimes the difference between a fraud and the real deal means everything. For Paul, it mattered a great deal that the Thessalonians were genuine believers. And the question that should loom over every person in this room from 1 Thessalonians 1 is simply this. Are you genuinely following Christ? Or is your relationship with Christ nothing more than a tragic hoax? That would be a tragedy. Let's pray that God would work in us so that we would see evidences that we are genuinely following Christ. And if you're here today and you're realizing maybe there's a lack of a genuine faith, I'm praying that the Holy Spirit would come and that He would work in your heart with power and conviction. Let's pray that New Hope Fellowship would be filled with people who are genuinely following Christ because there's nothing we love more than the good news of Jesus Christ dying on the cross for sinners like you and me. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for beginning of 1 Thessalonians, we know that uh, sometimes it's hard to work through these greetings. It's hard to know, uh, what do we make of this? But it seems that in 1 Thessalonians 1, we have some marks of genuine believers. It seems that as Paul praises the Thessalonians for evidences that he sees, it seems that there ought to be a challenge for us. Do we see these evidences in our own life? God, help us. Help us to follow you because we love you.